reading for you and preaching for you out of the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 26 through 31. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that these accounts of the building of your church has been recorded. We thank you for the account of the proclamation and the fruit of the good news of Jesus Christ in this story. We thank you for the hope of what your son has done and accomplished and what your spirit is doing among your people then and now. And may it be, Father, that as we read and go through your word today, that we would experience that peace, that we would build each other up in the peace of the Lord, that we would walk in the fear of you and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And Father, may by it, according to your promises, may we multiply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It may be in your home this uh, past couple of weeks, and I'm not necessarily saying this is an uh, exact account of what has occurred in our home in the last two weeks, but it is a count that does occur occasionally. But with the onset of many gifts, usually there's also a lot of toys. And with a lot of toys or a lot of new things or gadgets, um, when there's people, even adults, when there's something new and fun to, to look at and play with, um, their fighting ensues as you have, no matter what, how many things you have or if everybody gets the exact same kind or even in the same color, there's just the way the human nature is, there's often fighting ensuing. And then you hear an eruption. You know, first you hear the noise of the game. It could be the game, it could be a toy, it could be just the, the click-clacking of different things. And then all of a sudden you hear argument and then you have to go and try to reconcile and bring peace. And there's a process that many of you probably go through. You have a, a structure, the 
kids, the adults, all of us have a familiarity of how we're going to handle it. And sometimes to get to that particular process and point, there's more sin that occurs. For us, sometimes me and Jennifer, we enter into our own sin as we try to bring about peace and reconciliation in our anger or in our haste. We often end up stumbling over our own sin. What is necessary to rebuild trust and restore relationship in those situations? What are some of the things in your own home, in your own circumstances? In summarization, you don't have to lay it out in detail and definitely don't lay it out in detail with names or anything. Like when Knox does this, we have to do this and you know, don't, don't go that deep or anything. But what kind of things are necessary to try to restore things back to a place of joyful peace? You've got to hear information. All right, so there's got to be some facts put on the table. That's sometimes a very challenging scenario when it's a he said, she said, or she said, she said, or he said, he said situation. It's a very challenging thing, but you've got to get facts on the table. So that's one component, getting some kind of standard of truth established. What's another thing? Parties involved have to take ownership of their part. Oh, there has to yeah, they have to, you have to have a desire to have reconciliation. There has to be people who are you know, wanting to, to, to see resolution and own the situation. A lot of times in the beginning of these conflicts, I know in our home, just to get people to stop. You know, thankfully, it doesn't always happen that way, but you go in and it's like, stop talking, stop, stop talking, stop talking. <laughs> Because there's not a desire for reconciliation. And so the heart hasn't even begun. They're still in the middle of it. You got there a little too early. You know, they haven't even had a chance to process it. They're still escalating. And so there's not the transformation in the heart to, to at least, there's got to be a desire. It's like, you know what, this is not a good situation. <laughs> you know, we got to get this resolved. And, and it's, it takes a while to get to that place. Yes, sir? That is good. Yeah, that is good. That there is a hope for some kind of resolution and restoration. That's like, hey, we know that, that this can be worked out. Um, because at that time, it doesn't seem like it. It's like, it's hopeless. There is just, I am so angry, and they're so angry, and we are so far away. One moment ago, we were playing together, and now we're not. Yeah, and to give them the opportunity, which is really a lot of times the case, because usually it's like, you start getting a list of all these accusations, and you go, wait a minute. And some of these accusations are not even a part of that particular conflict. And you're like, you're not even, you haven't even dealt with these things. Why don't you all deal with that? And then sometimes it's not possible because there's so much disunity. But if there is that hope, because if they, if they believe there is an end. You know, in, a, in, a, in my notes, every notes for the past two months, it, my second point, I have a prayer that I pray. One is to admit that I can't do anything with God, without God that God's going to have to act in my preaching. The second one is to pray for help. And then the third one is to trust that the promises of God's word will be fulfilled. There needs to be a hope. You know, if I didn't have a hope that the preaching of God's word was going to have an impact, then I, 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 I'm, I would be nervous and scared to death that I am going to try to do something. 
my ability. I have no ability to bring any kind of transformation in people. So the same thing, our children have to understand that there is a hopeful resolution that can be in the end. So yes, all of those components are the necessary components for restoration. And I would say there's also at the end for there to be trust restored, even if you get people to admit to have a unity of truth, like, okay, what happened? Where was the infraction? Even if you get both parties to agree where the infraction is, which usually often is both parties have committed some kind of infraction, and if you get everybody to admit to that, and you get everybody to admit that we hold to the Christ and that we can, we can get to a resolution, there's still not trust yet. And that, that takes time. And so there has to be accountability. There has to be something in place that's going to see that hopeful fruitfulness occur. And so we're hoping that by the promises of God's word, if there is true forgiveness given, true acknowledgement given, that there will be a fruit and a peace that there will be hopeful peace in the end. But we'll have to have some kind of way to see that manifested so that we can restore that trust and have play. Now, I use the children's situation or even adults that have these kinds of spats because adults, we do the same thing in our own different ways. And, but this is, these processes were, are things that we, we hope in and operate in and we function in. Without it, there would be just complete chaos if we didn't have this hopeful restoration of peace and be able to play or work together again. And a lot of these things have to be done in the workplace. Um, one of my favorite guys to work with, there were a time when, when Dave and I were working with this guy, it was a very divided moment, a very intense divided moment. And now that particular guy, he's one of the, you know, because of restoration and his repentance and a hopeful transformation, and all three of us do hope in Christ, we're able to have a peaceful, fruitful working relationship. Well, as we, I wanted us to think about those necessary components for restoration as we go into this particular narrative that we have of Paul. Now, this is a kind of a, a, a scene closure for Paul for a while. Next week, we will go into the ministry of Peter and some of the other apostles. And so Paul's going to be put on the shelf for a little while again. And this is kind of wrapping up that introduction, a major introduction of Paul's ministry. Um, and, but there's a unique thing here. It's a short passage, but there's a lot going on here that's a very hopeful passage. I think in many ways, it's a, a very hopeful thing for us to see in what it is teaching us about the power of the gospel that occurred with Paul and the apostles at the beginning of his ministry. We see here in the beginning that it says that Paul, he said he had come from Jerusalem and he attempted to join the disciples. Now, this, these two words, attempted to join, again, like in many ways in the English translations of the Greek, is a, a little muted compared to what actually is being said here. He had this longing that the Greek word in attempted here is that he really had a major desire to be joined, and that word joined is to be glued, to be concreted, to be cemented in, to be one with the ministry of the apostles. As the Lord was working in his life and transforming him and making him an apostle in the name of Jesus Christ, he wanted to be along with the rest of the apostles. He saw himself in that extraordinary calling of the apostles, and he wanted to be unified in them. 
Now, one of the things that Luke doesn't do for whatever purposes here, from the last particular paragraph into this one, three years occurred. And we know this from Galatians 1, where Paul talks about what happened after he escaped from the near-death experience that he had in this last paragraph. He actually goes off into Arabia and then comes back to Damascus, and he doesn't enter into Jerusalem for a period of what most commentators indicate it was about three years, based upon Paul's own words, that he spent about three years in either Damascus or in Arabia. So there was a season of time where we don't really know for sure. Paul doesn't get into a lot of detail what happened in those three years. But he shows up in Jerusalem, and he wants to join with the apostles. And the apostles that you had in Jerusalem are primarily Peter and James and likely John. Now, it says in his own account that he was only able to get with Peter and with James. Now, he makes a different argument. His perspective is from a different place in Galatians 1, but we get to see a chronological account of what's going on. But at this point, when he reaches Jerusalem, he has a true desire to be unified with them. Why is it that they don't believe him, it says here? It says, they all were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Why is that the case? He was persecuting them. He was hurting them. Major, major pain was occurring between what Saul was doing and what the Christians were doing. There was a major division there. There was a major fight, in a sense, that had occurred. And so Paul was the first one to long to see a restoration of that. In the account that we have, and this may be one reason why Luke lays it out this way, Paul had repented of his sins and was baptized. Paul makes the account, when, what Ananias told him, it says, be baptized, be washed from your sins. So Paul had come to an acknowledgement of the truth that he had done something against the church. That he was going against Jesus Christ himself by persecuting the body of Christ. And he longed and sought for restoration. And so the three particular ways I'd like to break this up is one, there must be a desire for restoration, for restoration to occur. If you don't, you'll have the situations like we have with the children. You'll just continue to have arguing going on, or they're not going to be listening, or they're rolling their eyes at you as you're talking to them. All these things you know you've seen or even participated in. There, there has to be some kind of movement. For there to be true restoration, there has to be a movement where both parties are wanting to actually have that kind of unity. And so Paul had that, and it's very evident in the Greek with that word attempted, he longed. He attempted, he was striving so that he may be able to be unified and to be one with the other apostles. He had seen the transformation, experienced the transformation of what Jesus had done, and the disciples were not quite there yet. The rest of the apostles were, were very critical because they had seen what happened. They had seen the travesty and the devastation and the, and, the, and the pain. And we have the account of Stephen, but obviously from what we can see from Paul's own words, he was persecuting the church. He acknowledges what he did to the church. 
And so the first thing is to have a longing for restoration. But then there has to be some kind of standard. There has to be some kind of thing. A truth has to be laid on the table. Like Maru says, that we have to have where the facts come in. And so we know from the account of Paul that he knew the facts, but the disciples did not believe him. But we have an interesting scenario here. We have the very next verse that says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas becomes a mediator for Saul in this situation. It says that Saul had already attempted to join, but he was being rejected. And so Barnabas, very much like parents sometimes, having to come in, but Barnabas, knowing the situation, witnessing it in some form, having an acknowledgement, being able to make an account for Saul, said that, one, you need to hear about the story. Now, this, this story, these words here again, where it says he, it took, Barnabas took Saul and brought Paul to the apostles. It was, the, the took is a, it, the, the, the Greek word is like seizing. <laughs> I can just, you can imagine a situation when you've seen people who are divided and they're not, this is, it's like, this is not working out. You may have one person who, yeah, I long to see rec- reconciliation. I, I long to be one and at peace with these people, but it's not happening. Well, Barnabas comes in and he, he seizes Saul and he takes him and he presents him. It says that he brought him and it says that he, 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 put, he puts him before them. And then he, he, is, he becomes a defender for Saul. And the things that he uses... And his defense are the core of what brings restoration for us. It says here that he gave the account of how Saul was on the road. He had seen the Lord who spoke to him. Now, Saul is an apostle. But everything about our restoration, when it comes to what is based upon fact... We want to make ultimate restoration is always going to be when the truth is centered in some kind of truth of God's word. So if we're going to have any kind of restoration in a spat or in a major situation, truth has to come to the table. And many times some people have a disagreement of whether or not the infraction actually occurred or what is actually a fair rule, what is justice. That's some of the things that happens when we're dealing with children is, you know, like, well, this is mine. Or, well, no, you let me borrow it. Or, and, you, and you try to work out who had ownership of the thing. And you have to use sometimes biblical principle. You have to use other witnesses of how things went down. You have to understand whether a transaction occurred. You have to use God's principles of truth. When this particular situation, Barnabas is appealing to the word of Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus spoke to Saul and gave him a particular calling. That in, in, this, in, in this account, he's actually appealing to the apostleship and calling, saying, by the word of Christ that Saul heard, I can account that this happened, that he has been given the word of God. And he has a hearing to it because how at Damascus 
I saw that he preached boldly in the name of Jesus, that he preached boldly in the authority in the calling of Jesus Christ. And so what Barnabas is appealing to here is not that, hey, this guy's a good guy, or he's a really gifted guy, or man, I was just I had goosebumps when I heard him preaching. He was saying, no, he is adhering to the word of God. He was given specific and extraordinary special word of God. He is under that approval, and I have seen evidence of that fruit occur. I have seen transformation. He's preaching in that authority of Christ, by the authority of Christ, and I see the fruit. I see the fruit of the Spirit in Saul and how he is preaching boldly the name of Jesus Christ. He becomes a witness for Saul that something has really occurred. And sometimes that's what we need in a dispute is that we need to have truth on the table, and in, when he says that he encountered Christ, a lot is packed into that. And we know this from other accounts, that Paul recognized that he was a sinner. He recognized that he was wrong. He recognized that he was a persecutor of the faith. And he also received the command of Jesus Christ. The word, the truth, was on the table. And it was a centralized component that was going to assure the disciples that truth was being adhered to, not just because he had it received the truth or acknowledged the truth, but there was also the accountability that he was living the truth. So the first thing you have is you have a desire. First of all, in this case, you only had one party that had a desire to be reconciled. Then you have the facts laid out. You have truth. There has to be some kind of acknowledgement of truth, and ultimate truth is God's word. And you have accountability, which is... Ultimately, fruit. That's where you see that there is a road to trust and restoration is when that accountability and that fruit begins to manifest itself. And so the power of the gospel is being done here. There was a transformation in the heart of Saul. He adhered to the word with repentance and faith and obedience. And then a, a fruit of that obedience and the accountability of that which is what ultimately what Saul was longing for, to be joined with the apostles for that purpose. And then it says, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, and he continued to preach boldly in the name of the Lord. He even spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now, the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. This is basically the group of people just like Saul. Saul was a Greek-speaking Jew. And when this occurred, it says, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. When the brothers learned and they actually saw that fruit being manifested, they actually assisted him. They were the ones now bringing Saul in the furthering of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And brought him on to Tarsus. It says that Saul, when he was there in Jerusalem, he was actually in a trance praying in the temple. And God told him, it's time for you to go and preach to the Gentiles. And so these brothers, seeing that fruit being manifested by him being amongst those other people, being joined by the apostles, all the brothers were able to acknowledge and show that accountability that that Paul, Paul and Saul that he's legit. God is transforming him. 
He's now like us. We have common enemies. The Hellenists want to kill him too. That's, usually that's the one way to make a friend is to have common enemies. And the thing you have to be careful with, having common enemies is not necessarily always a good thing if you're really the bad guy. But in this case, because they're centered in the word of Christ and, and, and they're acting off of the name of Jesus Christ, their common enemies gave them assurance. They saw the fruitfulness of what Saul was doing, and therefore they assisted him in his ministry. The reason why I wanted to take this particular path is, is because in narratives, a lot of times, it just seems like information. It just sounds, you know, and this is a short paragraph. We're just kind of running through the story here. But inside of this, we see the beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel. This is not just some small infraction of her toy. This was the persecutor of the church. People died. People were being slaughtered. Bad things were happening to the people in the church. And Paul was the chief persecutor. And so for us to be able to understand this next, basically, sentence, paragraph, about the peace that was in the church, we have to understand what power of the gospel occurred. I'm going to pause for a minute, let you chew on that. I want to talk a little bit about a story that I read about that occurred in 1981. Uh, it was, uh, I was thinking about how all of these components come together. There's, there's three particular things, the desire to be reconciled, some kind of standard of truth being put, put before in, in, uni, in a unity of that standard of truth or everyone admitting to that standard of truth. And then lastly, an accountability and a fruitfulness of that that truth being manifested in life. And I was, for some reason, I was thinking about structures. And so I started reading about different structure collapses. And I read about a story that happened in 1981 in Kansas City, Missouri. It was, you all may have heard about this. It was in July of 1981. And there was a Hyatt Regency Hotel that had a major structural travesty. It was a new hotel, and it had this major atrium in the center of it, and it had these um, bridges from different floors that were crossing over the atrium. You had a second floor walk bridge, and then you had a, a fourth floor walk bridge that were stacked on top of each other, and they were suspended from the ceiling over the atrium. And there was this major event where there was over a 1,000 people in the atrium. And... As people were walking across the bridges, on the fourth bridge, fourth floor bridge that was suspended above, it broke loose, fell down to the second story walk bridge, and then both of them collapsed on the people below. Something like 114 people or, or something like that died, and then 200 and some people were injured. And it was a major structural, they consider it one of the, the most disastrous structural failure in the United States history, even though there are other buildings that have had major things, but just a, a complete bad thing. And the reason why is as they investigated, they found out there were a lot of errors that occurred. First of all, and it all came back down to the engineers. I have to scare you, Annie, here, Jonathan. <laughs> came back to the designers, the engineers that were in charge of the design of the building. And what had happened when they started designing it, there was 
There were, you know, whenever you're dealing with design, you're trying to bring in structure. You're also trying to design, design it to make it look beautiful. Well, when they were designing those bridges they were, that were being suspended because they wanted to look like they were floating above. They didn't want to have things down below it in the way inside of the atrium. They won. The engineers did not design. They only designed the bridges to handle 60% of the required code in Kansas City for what was going on there for people walking through. Well, in the process... Somebody says, well, those bars look ugly. They've got threaded rods, and they're not very nice looking. We've got to get rid of those and come up with some other design. So they changed the design, and when they did that, it brought it down to 30% of the code. So now we're getting very risky. And they're going back and forth, and then there was a neglect and confusion of communication between the engineer and the steel manufacturer, and they ended up designing these bridges that are not going to withstand, obviously, the load that is going across through there. And so as they investigated what happened and who was to blame, they did, of course, the engineering company was out of business. They were done once they realized that they had what they had done. And the engineering um, company owner, whose name was on the company, he actually admitted, he said, it is my fault. It's all my fault. And I think that guy today is still an instructor for engineering for engineering travesties. He ended up getting a job later on. They did say that there was no criminal neglect, and they didn't have any charges of criminal activity, but there was major mistakes. And what they said was, the first thing was that there wasn't the right kind of focus. There was no desire for there to be the assurance of their peace. They, 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 were, they got slack in their work. They weren't paying attention. They, they designed it right off the bat, not even meeting 60% of the code load for those bridges. And then secondly, there was this, there was this confusion. They weren't, not only were they not talking to each other, they weren't adhering to any code. They weren't even paying attention to the code. They went from 30%, I mean 60% of the code load to 30 No one even checked the standard to maintain their peace. And therefore, there was chaos and there was destruction. So if we invert that, if we invert what is there to restore that, first there has to be people who want to see peace. There has to be a hope that there can be peace. Some people are going to want you like, you want, we want to keep these people safe. We're just like with restoration, it's like we want to be in a place of peace. And we see that with Paul. And then there has to be a code, there has to be a standard that we can all agree to that gives us a confidence that there can be peace and assurance. Well, that confidence, there is nothing, especially in the situation with Saul and the apostles, there is nothing that can give you any kind of assurance that there's any kind of hope that these two parties were going to get along except the gospel of Jesus Christ and his standard. There had to be an, a knowledge that Paul had acknowledged that he had sinned, that he was a persecutor of the church. It wasn't just in disagreement with the church, that he had to hurt, that he had hurt the church. Barnabas was witness to that. And then there has to be that he acknowledges truth, and Barnabas said that Jesus, the word, the standard, actually spoke to Saul and gave him the calling that he had. And that so much that he was also the accountability they held each other accountable, which everyone in the situation of the Hydrant Regency disaster, no one held each other accountable. They weren't holding to the standard, 
And they weren't holding each other accountable to the standard. The steel manufacturer didn't even care. He, was just, he wasn't paying attention. He was being sloppy. With the, he was actually designed the bridges off of a, a proposed schematic, is what they said. He didn't even finalize it off of the final plans. There was no accountability. And this is what we have in the church. This is what goes on. And, and I think that we see this occurring in the church about their lack of adherence to the standard, their lack of accountability, and really not even a desire to see true restoration between us and God and with us as a man. We've become program churches. We want to see different activities happen. We want to appeal to whatever is a political virtue more than we want to adhere to the word of God. And so therefore there is no true peace or profit occurring in fruitfulness amongst God's people in the church today in a major way. There is things happening. There are things happening. But right now, the church is more of a byword in America. And I think it's primarily because we're like all of that craziness in the Hyatt Regency Hotel. They weren't even caring about the standard. I have pastors that I go to these preaching conferences telling me that they've spent years in the pulpit not preaching from the Word. And that it was such a novel and explosive idea to just preach from the Scriptures. And it's transformed their lives and transformed the church's lives. This is what was occurring here. This is what brought forth the next paragraph. The next paragraph says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Barnabas was known, we see in chapter 4, as son of encouragement. It's the same word as we see here in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That he was in this role of bringing and encouraging people to be unified in the word of God. He was being one who was a witness and an accountable partner to Saul that he saw the fruit. And he worked toward bringing that unity of faith. The churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and even in those statements, we're seeing the church grow. There's indication that from the locations, we didn't even know that things are going on. We're not getting all of the stories of what's going on in all of the region. God is growing the church everywhere right now, parallel to this particular event. But we see that because of this kind of restorative power of the gospel, the church is growing and they have this peace. When people are living according to the gospel standard, and when they have this desire to be in peace, and when they have this hope that it's going to occur, and when they are joined together and holding each other accountable, encouraging one another, and building each other up in the word of God, there is a true peace. And that peace is built upon the fact that they were walking in the fear of the Lord. They revered the Lord. They revered his word. They revered his wrath and they hoped in his forgiveness. And therefore they had the encouragement, the comfort 
of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to see it in these kinds of ways, but things like this occur in our own lifetime. In 1994, I know I've brought this story up many times before, or at least a couple times before, in the Rwandan genocide, where 800,000 people were slaughtered, mostly by machete, mostly by their neighbors, some of them by their neighbors that they were best friends with. And because of the, distinct, the, the, the division between the Hutus and the Tutsis and the fueling and feeding of that fire by the government, by constant propaganda, whatever sin was in their heart was magnified to such a level of bitterness that people who were neighbors and friends picked up machetes and chopped down their neighbors. And that's trying to be nice and calm about what all really happened in that time of a hundred days where 800,000 people died in 1994. For you adults, we were alive. I, the, the more I read about it, I don't know if there is anything more horrific that occurred outside of the wombs of women who aborted their children that is more horrific than what happened in 1994 in those hundred days. It was a massacre of division in a Christian nation. Even Christian clergy took up machetes and killed their neighbors. The de- demonic influence that occurred in that time had to be beyond anything that I can even imagine. 20 years later, though, A lot of those murderers were apprehended and they were put in prison. And within 20 years, around 2014, they were being released. Now, I'm not even going to get into the restorative justice that maybe should have occurred. Just like we we don't have any account in this passage about any restorative justice. Why wasn't Paul executed? There's not a a civil magistrate that was of a responsible place or a mindful place to, to do such a thing, I guess. Why wasn't David executed? Well, David was the king. So I'm not wanting to negate a note about that, but we don't know. In God's providence, sometimes people don't receive that restorative justice. But there is restorative grace that did occur. And we see that with Paul. And in Rwanda, 100,000 murderers were released after they did their time. Now, one of the things that we don't get on the headline news and hear about is what kind of restoration happened. World Vision was there immediately after all of this happened, and they set up camps, and they were helping the refugees and people who were displaced. They helped the 85,000 children who either lost both of, their kids, both of their parents or at least one parent. And they were trying to bring them to healing by giving them shelter and food, but they also knew that they had to help them deal with the horror that they had seen. And so they started helping them cope with what they had seen. And then they knew that there had to be a hope somewhere in the wisdom of World Vision and other Christian agencies that were there. They knew that they had to get the gospel truly manifested. In this Christian nation, a true understanding of what the gospel occurred, what can occur in the restoration of people with the presentation of the gospel. So they preached the truth to them. 
that Jesus was crucified, dead and buried and rose again, and that they needed to repent. It was interesting, the government actually rejected them at first from going into these kind of programs of teaching these people that the gospel was the hope. And then after they started seeing the fruit, it was transformative. There was the account in a book called As We Forgive by Catherine Lawson. She gives an account of one of the victims where her family was destroyed, and that was just some of the things that occurred to her. And it says, the struggle to forgive is palatable at times. One woman named Joy cries out to God to do what? To forgive her from failing to forgive. And then she quotes Joy saying, Oh God, forgive me for dwelling so much on the past, for pushing others away and feeling lonely when I didn't have to feel that way. And most of all, forgive me for not thinking of you and what you have given me today. Help me, God, to start living and to start truly being thankful for the ways you are working in my life. This is the victim of the horror. Praying out to God to forgive her. And it says that when she did that, she acknowledged that because of what Christ had done for her sins, she could forgive the others. And this was being preached to as many of the victims as these perpetrators were being released out of prison who was getting the same preaching in the prison. And they came and they repented to their victims. And the victims forgave them. And they were stored into brotherhood. This is a major thing in Rwanda. Rwanda is still under a lot of turmoil and a lot of political unrest But even the New York Times stated that it is amazing how transformative this restoration has occurred, that it is an island of order and relative prosperity in a poor and political volatile region. Could you be restored to someone who had done that to your family and done things to you? Well, that was the power of the gospel. I had to dig deep into that story more and more because I wanted to see, was there true repentance? There was a story about a little boy who had his best friend that was right next door as a Hutu best friend. And then when they kept listening to the propaganda, and it should be a warning to us to be careful of the propaganda you're listening to. Because you're getting tons of it right now to divide our nation. And then when his family picked up machetes and came over to his house, his best friend was one who helped kill his parents. And that best friend, when he came out of prison, that formerly best friend, they both have been given the gospel. And they are now restored to a stronger brotherhood that they've never experienced. The murderer of this other boy's family. They are now best friends, not because they were just neighbors who played together, but they are neighbors who have the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So we can understand this statement. If we can take a moment and think about what happened here with Saul and what happened here with the apostles, much like what we have in the story with Ananias, again, we can see why Luke is telling us that so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Brothers and sisters, I hope we can reach out to people in our community 
but we still have lots of work to do in our own hearts, that we would have that kind of desire that Saul had to be truly joined to each other, to be truly unified in the gospel, that we would really desire to see that peace in us and to build each each other up into the standard of Jesus Christ, to walk in the fear of the Lord. What we are doing in these discipleship studies of being those who are looking at ways to go deeper into the word and to go deeper into encourage and building each other up. It is those things that will bring this comfort of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit moves in God's word. And that is the only way we can be multiplied. People are not going to just come here because of food or even because of preaching. They're going to come here because of the restoration of the gospel. We must ask God to build us up in that fear, in that comfort. This table is that leveling field. Just like those Rwandans, both the perpetrators and victims, they had to be leveled by the gospel before there to be restoration. You couldn't have one who was saying, well, because I'm the victim, I'm better than my perpetrator. It had to be that all of us understood that what needs to happen is we need a savior and we have a savior who died and who was brutally murdered and who rose again and now reigns and has given his calling and his word to us to be a ministry of reconciliation. When we come to this table, we come with repentance, but we also come in obedience. Just as he told us to take this and to remember him, he told us that we are to be those who are to be bound together, to long to be joined together in his church. That is why he calls us to take this tables as, table as a members of the church, holding on to the gospel of repentance and faith. If that is you, take this table and enjoy this peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. Trust that there is going to be this. We're going to hold each other accountable and continue to walk. You may not say, well, I'm not, I don't, when I take the table, I don't feel the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's fruit is manifested in time through that discipling work of Jesus Christ. He promises us this in his word. We see it manifested here. We see it manifested in other nations. We see it manifested ultimately in our homes. And we need to testify and tell each other of that occurrence in our own lives. We need to be like Barnabas and encourage each other to be further in that in our lives day by day, moment by moment, spat by spat, major infraction after major infraction. It is the hope of the gospel. It is the hope of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.